Today's portion is from uh, Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 5 to 31. And um, those who are able, if you could stand as we read from God's Word. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 5 to 31. Jeremiah 4, 5 to 31. Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say... Blow the trumpet through the land, cry aloud and say, Assemble and let us go into the fortified cities. Raise a standard towards Zion, flee for safety, stay not, for I bring disaster from the north and great destruction. A lion has gone up from his thicket, a destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be in ruins without inhabitant. For this put on sackcloth, lament and wail. For the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. In that day, declares the Lord, courage shall fail both king and officials. The priests shall be appalled and the prophets astounded. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, surely you have utterly deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying, It shall be well with you, whereas the sword has reached your very life. At that time it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, a hot wind from the bare heights in the desert towards the daughter of my people, not to winnow or cleanse. A wind too full for this comes for me. Now it is I who speak in judgment upon them. Behold, he comes up like clouds, his chariots like the whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims trouble from Mount Ephraim. Warn the nations that he is coming. Announce to Jerusalem. Besiegers come from a distant land. They shout against the cities of Judah. Like keepers of a field, they are against her all around. Because she has rebelled against me, declares the Lord. Your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom and it is bitter. It has reached your very heart. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Crash follows hard on crash. The whole land is laid waste. Suddenly my tents are laid waste, my curtains in a moment. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish, they know me not. They are stupid children, they have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil, but how to do good they know not. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be desolation, yet I will not make a full end. For this the earth shall mourn and the heavens above be dark, for I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not relented, nor will I turn back. At the noise of horsemen and archer, every city takes to flight. They enter thickets, they climb among rocks, all the cities are forsaken and no man dwells in them. And you, O desolate one, what do you mean that you dress in scarlet? that you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint. In vain you beautify yourself. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life. For I heard a cry as of a woman in labor, 
anguish as of one giving birth to her first child. The cry of the daughter of Zion, gasping for breath, stretching out of her hands. Woe is me, I am fainting before murderers. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <coughs> 2005 was the year that holds the record for the most hurricanes formed in a season originating from the Atlantic Ocean which was 15, 15 in one year. The 2005 Atlantic hurricane season had the most major hurricanes ever. Basically, there were seven major hurricanes of all time. And out of that, there was one that was the most deadliest and destructive, which claimed about uh, over 1,800 lives and caused damages well over $108 billion. It was called Hurricane Katrina. On August 29, 2005, Hurricane Katrina mainly affected the New Orleans, the city of New Orleans in Louisiana, which resulted in massive floods, even after the hurricane swept through the city. And the damage was caused mainly due to the failure of the, the flood banks, the, the pieces of big giant stone that was there to prevent water from overflowing from the banks and flowing into the city. And it was considered the worst civil engineering disaster in U.S. history. Now, what's difficult to understand is what happened exactly seven years to the date. August 29th, 2012, that was when Hurricane Isaac hit the same city, but it was of much lesser intensity. In 2005, Hurricane Katrina was a Category 5 hurricane, basically meaning it had winds of over 250 kilometers an hour, dumping that much amount of water, just ripping roofs and houses apart. But... Hurricane Isaac was only a Category 2, still with winds of excessive 140 kilometers an hour. Even though it was of much lesser intensity, it caused the deaths of 41 people and it caused damages around $2.4 billion. It's not that the hurricane happened exactly seven years later that I don't understand, but the fact of how people reacted the second time. The residents of New Orleans they received prior warnings at least two weeks before Hurricane Isaac hit. They were given warnings to evacuate their cities, their homes, and go to safety. And in my mind, I was thinking, if I was a resident of the city of New Orleans, and if I knew that such a calamity was going to take place, and I had enough of time to take action, I would get my family and myself out of there, including the things in my study room as well. But some people were determined to ride out the storm. They actually wanted to stay back indoors, that is, in their homes, and they wanted to wait for the storm to pass. They wanted to battle Hurricane Isaac, so to speak. And the funny thing is, their reason for that. If you go back to 2005, if you go back to the hurricane, a lot of people experienced a lot of loss, not only from this natural disaster that happened, but also because a lot of people resorted to theft, convenience stores were broken into, money was taken, a lot of produce and food products were stolen, people broke into houses, stole the money, the valuables, the TVs. There was a lot of robbery that was going on. And so these brave people in the second hurricane, that was their mindset. What they were saying was, we're staying, I'm not leaving my home and my big screen TV so looters can come and steal it. 
It's not a big deal. We'll, we'll weather the storm. And the question that I ask myself is, how many hurricanes do these fools have to go through to decide that it is wise to get out of the way of a 140-kilometer-per-hour hurricane, dumping massive amounts of water and, and basically flooding the whole city, and especially knowing the fact that your city lies about seven feet below sea level. A similar situation happens almost 2,500 years ago. It is that time during the final days of the northern kingdom called Israel. And imagine you are in the southern kingdom, that is Judah. You look to the north, just over the border, and you would see your own people worshipping false idols, giving into detestable things, and you realize that it is the same things that is happening in your own city as what you see happening in Israel. The same pagan worship. And while in Judah you hear of prophets named Elijah and Elisha and Hosea in Israel, who is foretelling of the destruction that was to come on Israel if they did not repent of their idolatry. And then a few years later, you look up north again and you see the Assyrians coming like a hurricane, destroying everything in their path, and eventually they uproot and destroy Israel. They take many Israelites from their land, they resettle them in the kingdom of Assyria, they bring foreigners to establish their hometown in Israel, and everything is just messed up for Israel. Now, seeing this happen, what would the smart thing to do be? Israel was wiped out before your very eyes because of idolatry. There were prophets that was warning them about this coming judgment if they didn't repent. And then the people in Judah are doing the same thing. You realize the city you're in is doing the same thing, worshiping idols, committing spiritual adultery. And a couple, couple of years later, after all those warnings, you see in front of your very eyes Israel being wiped out. And the best part of it is, a hundred years later, you have a prophet also running around in your streets saying you need to repent or the same thing that's happened to your sister Israel is going to happen to you. What would your response be to Jeremiah? Or the question to ask is, how many invasions must these fools have to experience before they realize that their God is serious about their sin? And the book of Jeremiah begins around 100 years after the invasion of Israel by Syria. Basically, Judah, in essence, had 100 years to learn from Israel's mistake. Because the invasion, or the punishment that God sent to Israel, happened 100 years before Jeremiah started his ministry. But unfortunately, we can see from the book of Jeremiah with his ministry, these people didn't learn a thing. As a matter of fact, as we have seen in a couple of chapters before Jeremiah 4, Judah was worse than Israel because Judah was called treacherous Judah. The reason being, even though they saw the wrong that Israel did, even though they saw the punishment that befell them, they still chose to willingly turn their face away and continue in their sin. And we come to Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 5 to 31, where we see that because Judah and Jerusalem haven't repented, swift punishment is on its way. You see that in verse 6. In the form of an invasion and total destruction that was coming from the north. And God reminds them that they have brought this punishment upon themselves because of their unrepentant ways. 
verses 5 to 10, you see what is going on is that God is telling Jeremiah to warn Judah about the coming destruction. And God tells Jeremiah that the one who is going to enact judgment upon Judah is already on his way. He explains to Jeremiah what is going to happen to Judah once that, that enemy of Judah comes. How he destroys the places in verses 7 to 8. And when that day comes, God is saying their national leadership, their kings, their officials, their priests, their prophets, they are all going to be confused. They are all going to be lost. And thereby, their nation's false sense of pride and peace will be shattered in a moment. Because if you read Kings and Jeremiah, you will see that the false prophets were declaring a false message of peace, that the city will experience peace. And it was only Jeremiah who was preaching destruction to these people. Verse 11 to 18, you see the metaphor of a wind being used. And in the ancient days, and even some, uh, in some places back home, wind is used to separate the chaff from the grain. But over here, you see God telling Jeremiah that it is a metaphor for destruction that God is going to bring. And God goes on to explain the military might of this bringer of destruction in verses 11 to 13. You see how mightier he is than Israel. And in listening to all this, Jeremiah could only insert a plea to Jerusalem to repent. Because Jeremiah sees this, this, this scary vision of what God is showing him. Of how his people are going to suffer at the hands of an invader. And as he sees this vision, Jeremiah hears the voice of a watchman. Who is announcing that he has observed the enemy's army approaching from the north. Basically, this, this watchman who's running from Dan, Dan is the northernmost part of Israel. And how he's slowly working down, he comes to, to the hills of Ephraim, that is a central hill area of the whole land. If you put Israel and Judah together, that's a central area. And then eventually, this watchman comes to Jerusalem and he's saying, your enemy is at your doorstep. And God reminds Judah again that this calamity is because Judah rebelled against him. Rebellion that started with the going away from God, which then resulted in the corruption of their hearts and their minds. Which in turn resulted in them becoming wicked. Their own behavior and actions had brought this upon themselves in verses 15 to 18. And then in verses 19 to 22, you see that Jeremiah can't take this anymore. He's so saddened, he's so depressed that he, he freely expresses his own grief in verse 19 to 20. And these verses make mention of the fact that the punishment is unbearable, but it is a punishment that is due. You see how Jeremiah suffers with God and his people. You see, what does is, what is verse 19 say? My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain over the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. And you get the idea that Jeremiah is some kind of mediator between his people and God, how he suffers with his people. And that is part of the reason why Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet or the suffering, suffering prophet. He cares for his people. And 23 to 28 reminds us that Judah's covenant failure affects the world. And because of their failure in verse 23, Jeremiah pictures an undoing of the created order. And if you look at those verses, they bear a stark resemblance to Genesis chapter 1, when God creates the world. And you see the reverse happening in verse 23. This destruction is going to be so bad, it is, that land is going to be so desolate, people are going to think that creation was reversed. 
That's how bad this invasion was. Because these covenant people, God chose them to shine His light through them for the unsaved nations around them. And if they fail in their covenant, they were going to be punished because there were repercussions when they, when they initiated their covenant with the God of Israel. That is why we see Christ's life as fulfilling the covenant in order to be the light to the Gentiles. And in the last section of the chapter, that is verses 29 to 31, you see the enemy wrecking havoc among the people. And as, they, as, as the people seek to, to find refuge. But the sad part of it is there are these two final images that are shockingly contrasting. What you see is, let me read the verses out because it's not that clear. I'll read verse 20 or 30. And you, O desolate one, what do you mean that you dress in scarlet, that you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint? In vain you beautify yourself. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life. Basically, what Jeremiah is seeing over here is, or in essence, what is, what is going to happen in the future is, Judah gets conquered by Assyria. They are in trouble. They are being destroyed. Their, their, their towns are being pillaged. And still, they do not turn to God. What this verses are describing is Jerusalem becoming like a prostitute. How she dresses herself so that she can seduce her enemy to gain favor from, from them. That is basically what Jeremiah sees over here. They are so evil that even though they are wrong, they turn away. Even though punishment is upon them, they still try to find favor in their enemies rather than turn to God. And then verse 31, For I heard a cry as of a woman in labor, anguish as of one giving birth to her first child, the cry of the daughter of Zion gasping for breath, stretching out her hands, Woe is me, I am fainting before murderers. And what this image shows is that Judah is going to suffer. She is going to suffer as a woman bears pain as she gives birth to a child. But contrary to most deliveries here, when a woman is comforted and surrounded by people who love her, Judah is going to be surrounded by people who want to murder her. She will not get the care that she deserves to get because she doesn't deserve it. Israel had forsaken the Lord and fell into spiritual idolatry. Judah followed suit and fell into the same situation. Israel was warned, but they did not repent, and so God punished them by sending the Assyrians to destroy their lands. hundred years later, Judah was also warned, and the same punishment that was reserved for them was the same for Israel. They saw the effects of the punishment firsthand happening right in front of their eyes. Because both cities or both countries had the same border. There was no way that they could miss what happened to Israel. But they still refused to repent and turn back to God. And so God warns them and gives them a final chance to repent. But sadly, they don't repent. Instead, they choose to take refuge in what the false prophets declared. What was false peace, basically. And if they fell into trouble, what we saw in the last verses, they relied on their own strength and their own plans to get out of trouble. They would put faith in man, who was basically their enemy, rather than turn to God. Sometimes <coughs> we are like the people of Judah or the people of, the, of New Orleans during the 2012 hurricane, where we have read 
or seen firsthand what the Lord can do or what he has done, but we still think we know better. That we enjoy the sin or the wrong that we are in so much that we would rather stoop so low and rebel against God rather than stop doing the wrong and repenting to him. I'm saved. It's okay. I can continue doing what I want to do. It's fine. It's so hard. It's so hard to come out of the pit of sin. It's like swimming against the stream or trying to throw a paper towel against the wind. The problem with Israel and Judah was not really adultery or spiritual idolatry or spiritual adultery. God was the center of their lives before they were on the downward spiral of adultery. Those of you who are parents or who have, their, who have your own families or those of you who are children, you have all seen the situation happen at home where your parents or you yourself have has bought fresh fish from the market and you bring it home. You would see your mom or dad either clean the fish and what do they do next? It's fresh. What do you do? You either put salt in it. Back home they used to put salt to dry it because they didn't have refrigerators. Or in the Western world now, if we want to preserve the fish, if we don't want it to decay, what do we do? We put it in the freezer to use it for another day. Once God was removed from the focus of their lives, once God was removed from their lives, the chaos of sin can only do one thing. Sweep in and take over the mind, of hearts, mind and hearts of frail human beings. In the absence of God, there is sin. It is like John writes in John 1, In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not overcome it because the darkness is not of equal value to the light. Darkness is basically the absence of light. It is merely the absence of God's light that causes the metaphorical darkness of this world to set in. If you don't have God in your life to preserve and keep you, it can only be sin that replaces that void. You can only remain in darkness. You can only do evil if you have no God. Israel and Judah removed God from themselves. They removed him from their lives. They removed him from their worship. And that was a problem, and it's one of the biggest problems anyone can have. When you remove God from your life, you will notice this, as I have a lot of times, that you begin to stop speaking the way God wants you to speak. You stop thinking the way God wants you to think. You stop behaving the way God wants you to behave. Everything becomes self-centered. It's all about me, me, me. Everything becomes so evil. We start beginning to think about people in an evil way. Even our family of God. And it is a problem for us. We remove God from the equation in the things that we do, in, in our decisions that we make, in the way we speak. And you see that it doesn't just stop with you. It extends from you into your homes, into, the, into your workplace, into the schools that you go study in. And sometimes you even see that creeping into church. Jeremiah 4 is a reminder of the importance of keeping God at the center of our Christian lives or else we can see the repercussions of what happens. Judah and Israel both are examples of what happens when we remove, willingly remove God from our presence, from our lives. We need to be one with Him. In anything we do, it should display Christ. Anything we speak, our words should come out as Christ. Our actions should reflect Christ. 
If we do not have Christ at the center of our lives, it is very easy for us to go astray and conform to the ways of evil. Just as we saw in Jeremiah. So that was for those who are saved, who are Christians. That you are to keep God at the center of your lives, otherwise things can go very wrong. For the person who has not accepted Christ as their savior... The question can be asked, how many judgments do you need to go through to know that God is serious about sin? Unfortunately, the answer is none. Because if you find yourself at, at a judgment, it is only one judgment, by then it is too late. It is too late. The Bible has enough and more examples to show that God is not joking about what He says and what He says will come to pass. What did Jesus say in Matthew? Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will never pass away. Physics could be defied, but God's word will, not, will never be defied. Paul says in Romans 10 verse 9, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you die without Christ, you will not be saved. It's simple as that. It's a binary choice. One or zero. There is no ifs or buts. You will be eternally separated from Him for eternity, suffering and anguish in a place called hell. You will wish you could die, but unfortunately the suffering goes on for eternity and you will never die. You will suffer pain, you will suffer anguish, you will suffer depression, you will suffer so many things. And especially you will suffer from the thought that I rejected a God who was real, but I thought He wasn't real. But the good news is, what Christ did on the cross, that He died for your sins, that He died to pay for your sin. His cross becomes your cross if you accept Him. When God sees you, He sees the punishment has been paid for, the debt has been taken away because of what His Son did on the cross. And so to sum up in a few words, what we saw from Jeremiah 4 verses 5 to 31 is, for the Christian, God is the one who preserves you and keeps you till you leave this earth or till His Son comes back to take you. And for the, those who are unsaved, He is the solution to the sin that will eternally separate you from God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we want to thank You for this wonderful day that You have blessed us with. We want to thank You for your word that we can just get lost in, Heavenly Father. This deep ocean that we can keep diving deep down and we will never be satisfied with where we reach because your word is so rich with meaning, so valuable. And we want to thank you for that. But we also want to thank you for simple truths that you give us. Things that we can apply in our lives because you have promised to help us that you have given us your Holy Spirit to be with us, to teach us, to understand these things, to be, to be able to do things that we couldn't do with our sinful selves, Heavenly Father. You enable us to be conformed to the image of your Son. You enable us to be good. You enable us to worship you. And we want to thank you for all that. We want to pray that we would remember this lesson, Heavenly Father, that our lives without you is useless. It is only evil 
and we become lost without you, Heavenly Father. Help us to realize the seriousness of this, Heavenly Father. That in you, in your Son, is life. Help us to make this truth real to us so much so that we could be like Jeremiah, that we would be sad for those people who are unsaved in the world, that we would have a heart for them, that we would take this message to them because if they die today, they will be eternally lost. They will be eternally separated from you. Help us to have the love for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as well as those who are lost in this world, dear Lord. Help us to have you as a focus of our lives. Have you as a center of our lives. Help us to revolve around you. Let us do everything that has to do with you. And let us have and find happiness in that. This we ask in the most precious name for Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.